And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Glad to have you with us. And let me begin by saying that we take a considerable amount of pride here in bringing you a wide range of in-depth interviews. If you haven't noticed, I wanted to state that. But I also wanted to let you know that we talk to highly regarded experts and a variety of different topics. Recently, just by chance, we've talked to a number of medical doctors of high stature. And this episode is no exception on that score. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lustig. Let me tell you something about him. He is a pediatric endocrinologist with a specialty in neuroendocrinology and childhood obesity, served as director of the University of California, San Francisco's WATCH program, a weight assessment program for teen and child health, and is the president and co-founder of the nonprofit Institute for Responsible Medicine and is former chair of the Obesity Task Force for the Endocrine Society. He's a graduate of MIT with a medical degree from Cornell and the author of a number of books, some of which I know some of you are familiar with, The Real Truth About Sugar, Fat Chance, Metabolical, The Hacking of the American Mind, and he's pretty busy now, uh, actually CEO of four companies, CMO, excuse me, of four companies, and I want to welcome Bob Lustig to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to have you with us. Oh, Michael, this is just something I've been waiting for for weeks now, and uh, I'm just so tickled that you uh, um, thought enough of me to uh, have me on. Well, I think enough of you, that goes without saying, but also uh, I know you have a lot to tell us and enlighten us about, and looking forward to talking with you and getting questions from those who are listening to us live. Um, You kind of made, I I should say for people who don't know Robert Lustig, he kind of made sugar infamous. Uh, in ways that nobody had before, talking about it as toxic and addictive and uh, talking about the real uh, deleterious effects on health in ways that nobody had previously, and built up mass awareness, and that's certainly greatly to his credit, and as he has in so many other things. Um, I-, I wanted to begin by just asking you about sugar, talking a little bit with you about sugar, because the idea of addiction and sugar... Um, it's, it seems to some people maybe more of a craving. When I th- think of addiction, you think maybe more of opioids than you do of sugar. So talk about that, if you would. Why is it addictive? And how is it addictive? Right. right. So, um, you know, not everyone believes it, uh, that it is addictive. Uh, I do. Uh, the data, I think, are very supportive. Uh, and they're, they come in three flavors. They come in uh, biochemical uh, uh, flavor. They come in a neuroimaging flavor. And to be honest with you, they come in an economic flavor. We actually have data that supports the economics of addiction in terms of sugar consumption, um, a a process which you're probably familiar with called, uh, price elasticity. So, um, it is true that some neuroscientists do not believe this. Most of them are in Europe. Most of the American scientists believe that sugar is addictive. And of course, the question is, you know, why is there this split? Why is there this dichotomy between, uh, uh, you know, across the pond? And if you look at the uh, uh, debates that have occurred, and there was just one in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition a couple of months ago, uh, Ashley Gearhart at U of Michigan versus Johannes Heberbrand from University of Hamburg. Basically, what they say is that sugar can't be addictive because you need sugar to survive. And if it's part of food and you need food to survive, then how could it be addictive? Well, that would be true if sugar were a food. But the question is, is sugar a food? In fact, it is not, because it doesn't actually meet the criteria for food. 
If you look in the def, uh, dictionary, the definition of food, I mean, it sounds like sil- silly question, but in fact, it's actually very important. The definition of food is substrate that contributes either to the growth or burning of an organism. That's a fine definition. Well, it turns out sugar actually inhibits growth and it inhibits burning when you actually look at the data carefully. And so, in fact, sugar is not a food. What is it? It's a food additive. And there are plenty of food additives that are addictive. In fact, alcohol is addictive. Nicotine is addictive. You know, we, and we can go down the list. And so if you reclassify sugar as a food additive, then it actually makes sense that it would be addictive. And after all, we call it added sugar. It is a food additive. And so it could then be um, regulated. It could be um, uh, 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 you know, there could be a, a, a societal intervention at the level of uh, the food industry and in terms of uh, individual consumption. You know, there are different ways to do this. It's why there's a soda tax in San Francisco and in six other cities and in 28 countries around the world is because they recognize, in fact, it is both toxic and addictive because it is not food. Of course, a lot of people get nervous when you start talking about regulation because they start thinking, uh, hey, this is a craving. This is something I want. I should be able to use it or abuse it at my will, my volition. Well, well, you know, uh, the question is, is it okay to abuse um, heroin? Is it okay to abuse cocaine? You know, for the individual, maybe so. But for society, and that's ultimately where we, you know, have to draw the line. When something is both you uh, is something is ubiquitous, and toxic, and addictive, and has negative impact on society, what we would call externalities. Those are the four criteria that the public health community agrees require, you know, cause, causes you to start thinking about regulation. Well, sugar meets all four of those. It certainly meets ubiquity. It's in 62% of all the foods in the grocery store and was put there by the food industry on purpose for their purposes, not for yours. It is toxic because it is a mitochondrial toxin. It actually causes your mitochondria to function less well. Your brain is filled with mitochondria. It causes your brain to function less well. It causes your heart to function less well. It causes your liver to function less well. It causes your pancreas to function less well, which is why it is a primary driver of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, fatty liver disease, cancer, dementia, uh, polycystic ovarian disease, hypertension, for all those reasons. For all those reasons, it, I have to ask you, what's the best way to get off it? I mean, <laughs> if you're on it and you're addicted to it, as you're suggesting, right. you know, other than free will, what alternatives do you have to that, not abuse that, it? That is the $64 zillion question, is how do we unaddict an entire population? Well, unfortunately, the same way you unaddict people uh, from, you know, cocaine, heroin, et cetera, and the answer is one at a time. There is no, you know, sort of global ability to, you know, unaddict an entire population. So how do you do that? Well, what we've learned, and we did this in our clinic at UCSF for 17 years, is the first thing you have to do is you have to unaddict the parent. 
okay, when you interdict the parent, then the parent will stop bringing it in. And if they stop bringing it into the house, there's a good chance that the kid can get unaddicted. But if the parent is addicted, the kid's, uh, you know, lost cause. So you have to unaddict two people at the same time. That's number one. Number two, you have to explain to people what they're about to feel. So when people go off sugar, and we would basically explain, you don't have to uh, stop eating fruit, but you have to stop drinking fruit juice because fruit and fruit juice are not the same thing because fruit fruit has fiber, which actually inhibits sugar absorption. So it actually doesn't reach the uh, uh, reward center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, because it never got past the intestine. Whereas fruit juice gets absorbed immediately, goes straight to the brain and fosters that continued uh, uh, craving and wanting. So um, what we explained to them is that for the first five to seven days after they cut back their sugar consumption, they're going to feel lousy in the same way they'd feel lousy if they stopped smoking, the same way they'd feel lousy if they stopped taking cocaine or heroin or alcohol. Okay. I mean, alcohol, you stop uh, alcohol, you get the DTs. The point is there is a withdrawal phase and that withdrawal phase comparable to the to, things you mentioned not um, really. not as not no. as severe no. not as severe but yes comparable and that they when they come out the other side on um, you know around five to seven days usually for most people their brain is going to feel clear for the first time they're going to actually see that they can actually think faster be sharper feel better they're going to have more energy and uh, they have to know to expect, you know, sort of five to seven days of hell. And when they do and they come out the other side, they never go back because now they say, whoa, that really was uh, a, a, a roller coaster ride. And now I understand what hold sugar had over me. They'd never had been sugar free. And so they didn't understand what how their lives had been negatively impacted for so long. Now, are there other, you know, tools in the, in the toolbox to help? And the answer is yes, there are some other things you can do with addiction. You have to do addiction transfer. So you can certainly get people to focus on other things that will help. Uh, what we've learned is Does that, that mean things reasons, that are sugarless, for example, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like work. <laughs> but some or, people uh, don't like the chemicals that are in, uh, and sugarless substances either. They certainly invade yep. against them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so diet sweeteners can help, but they're really, um, it, it, if it's just a substitution of sugar for diet sweeteners, turns out diet sweeteners are about half as toxic as sugar. We now have the data to show that the toxicity of one Coca-Cola equals the toxicity of two diet Coca-Colas. Half as bad. But that doesn't mean good. It means half as bad. So if you say, well, it, there's no sugar, there's no calories, you know, I can have as many diet sweeteners as I want. If you're Donald Trump and you have, you know, 24 diet Cokes a day, the question is, what does that do to you? And the answer is, it still causes the, a release of insulin and it still alters your intestinal microbiome. So it still leads to leaky gut and chronic inflammation. So it is not a quick fix. It is not a, a rational uh, substitute. What it is, is it's a useful method for weaning off. 
How do you make decisions, though, when it comes to sugar? Particularly, I'm thinking about uh, all the great debate about milk chocolate versus uh, dark chocolate. <laughs> People chocolate. say, well, dark chocolate is healthier for you. It doesn't have as much sugar. But at the same time, there are those who think it has metals in it, right? Because That's it right. That's right. South, South American chocolate in particular. So for reasons that are unclear, chocolate likes to accumulate a uh, heavy metal called cadmium. And cadmium is a major oxidative stress, causes major stress on the liver. And it, uh, you know, it, it just so happens excuse me, that- there's lead in there too, isn't there? There's lead in it too, yes, absolutely. And it just so happens that South American chocolate has higher levels of both cadmium and lead than other uh, uh, sources of chocolate. So- you know, people are actually trying to figure out how to uh, get South American cocoa plants to not uh, uh, accumulate uh, cadmium. They're using genetic engineering on cocoa plants to try to, you know, limit the cadmium and lead exposure. So point is, you know, uh, dark chocolate, yes, it has less sugar, but it might also, you know, cause significant oxidative stress. And, you know, um, uh, that's uh, part of the aging process. Those are tough so, decisions, uh, though, aren't they? I mean, when you're, well, when you're trying yeah. to balance things uh, in terms of how much sugar you should have as intake. Uh, you know, this is you know one of the the great questions of life. You know, um, short term pain, a short term gain for long term pain. You know, is the reward worth it? And ultimately, that's a decision only each individual can make. I have some other big questions of life. Uh, I'm almost <laughs> tempted to ask you uh, if you're thinking about sugar and all of its deleterious effects. Uh, how do they? Um, how's it stack up against say? Well, I was going to ask you, we've got some questions coming in that I want to get to as well, but I was just going to ask you about whether you put sugar as being paramount to avoid more than, say, processed foods, for example, or more than uh, saturated fats or the kinds yeah. of things that we're constantly told we need to avoid. And should right. So let's let's talk about the sugar versus saturated fat argument. This was the argument of Ansel Keys and John Yudkin from the 1970s. And, you know, Keys won the argument. Yudkin got thrown under the bus. You know, he basically died in ignominy. His, you know, uh, lab had been taken away from him and his office had been taken away from it at the University of London because he had been discredited. You know, the fact of the matter is Yudkin was right. Keys was wrong, but it only took 40 years to figure it out. Now, the question is, saturated fat, good or bad for you? Answer, neither. It's neither good nor bad for you. And it turns out there are two saturated fats. There's not one, there's two. So there's even chain saturated fatty acids, which you find in red meat. And then there's odd chain saturated fats with a different phospholipid signature that you find in say dairy and it turns out the red meat saturated fat when you look at that in terms of risk for heart disease because that's basically what everyone's worried about in terms of saturated fat turns out it's cardiovascularly neutral and um, dairy saturated fat actually looks to be protective against cardiovascular disease and also diabetes and the reason is because of that phospholipid. That phospholipid actually is protective and actually is good for your cell membranes as opposed to, say, red meat saturated fat, which doesn't have it. The question is, is red meat good for you? 
The answer has always answer, been no. <laughs> yeah, and the and and I agree. The answer is no. It's not good for you, but not because of the saturated fat. It's not good for you because it has heme, iron, which is an oxidative stress. It's not good for you because it has branched chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, valine. These are amino acids that are necessary to build muscle, but when you overconsume them, as you know, as in red meat, you will end up uh, not being able to put them all into muscle. You will deamidate them. You will take the amino group off the amino acid. Now you have a branch chain organic acid, which will then go into the Krebs cycle in the mitochondria, overwhelm your mitochondria, get thrown off from the mitochondria as citrate. Citrate then serves as the substrate to turn that substrate into fat in your liver. Now you have fatty liver, and now you have insulin resistance, chronic metabolic disease. In addition, red meat has high levels of choline. Now, choline is necessary. It's vitamin B4, right? You need to consume choline. Choline is a precursor to acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter you need for your brain. And choline is a precursor to phosphatidylcholine, which is necessary to move fats around the body from the liver, say, to the adipose tissue. So you need choline, but when you consume excess choline, the bacteria in your intestine will turn that choline into a compound called trimethylamine, TMA, which then gets absorbed, goes to the liver, gets oxidized to a compound called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which turns out to be the stickiest substance the body can make. And it will line your arteries and your liver and cause the same cardiometabolic detriments that trans fats do. And so the bottom line is red meat is not great, but it's not because of the saturated fat. And, and making so get we you have to process food for the moment too. Absolutely. So, that? so ultra processed food is high in sugar, low in fiber, high in omega-3s. Saturated fat is neither here nor there. But the bottom line, did I say high in omega-3s? I meant high in omega-6s, my mistake, which are pro-inflammatory. So, and, and of course, devoid of fiber. So everything about ultra-processed food goes the wrong way in terms of metabolic health. And so we now understand that, yes, sugar's the uh, the uh, the payload, but ultra-processed food is the vehicle. And the ultra-processed food consumption in this country, despite all the admonitions and despite all the data and despite all of the alternatives, just continues to rise. And this is the big problem. Well, lots of questions coming in, as you can imagine. I want to go to as many as we can here. The first is... Dave up in Seattle, who once says, a friend of mine with type 2 diabetes substantially reduced his need for insulin by taking cinnamon throughout the day and specifically after meals. What are some of the options to reduce the effects of sugar in food? And I'll couple that with a question that's come from Germany in just a moment along similar sure. lines. Sure. So there are a lot of people who are looking at nutraceuticals as treatments for type 2 diabetes. None of them have come up with any meaningful uh, and you know consistent across the board beneficial effects. There are several of them. There's cinnamon is one, turmeric is another, alpha lipoic acid is another, and there are many, many others that have been uh, tried as well. Chromium is another one. Um, the data don't support 
though you know those uh, 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 various nutraceuticals at least uh, not alone. They've been double blind it's studies possible. with all of those that we know. It's of. possible that it be a combination of them, but no one's demonstrated consistently from a scientific standpoint that any of these are valuable. Everyone knows an N of one, like you know Dave in Seattle where somebody got better because they, you know, went on a nutraceutical. Uh, we're still waiting for the data to show that there's a nutraceutical out there that will actually either reverse or fix diabetes. I don't see it. I haven't seen it. I'm not against these, but uh, until we have, uh, you know, very clear-cut beneficial data, uh, I can't be for them either. This is not a cure, but metformin seems to be at least ameliorative where diabetes is concerned. And some in Silicon Valley think it increases longevity. I'm not sure. I'm pretty skeptical well, about that, but it does help with and, diabetes too. Yeah. yeah. And so, well, remember that metformin is a drug. You have to get it from your doctor. It's not a uh, nutraceutical. Um, metformin, of the various drugs that are out there, probably has the best um, uh, benefit profile and also the best side effect profile. And so it has become first line in terms of diabetes therapy and appropriately so. And it's also becoming first line in terms of longevity therapy. And I'll explain why. Metformin activates an enzyme in your cells called AMP kinase, AMP kinase. And it turns out AMP kinase is the fuel gauge on the cell. It basically decides how your cell's going to burn energy. And the way it does it is it tells your cell to make more and fresher mitochondria, those little energy burning factories inside all your cells. So when you clear old mitochondria, which is called mitophagy, and you create new fresh mitochondria, called mitochondrial biogenesis, you have done your cells a big favor. Now, it just so happens you don't have to take metformin to do either of those two things. You can exercise. Exercise activates PGC1-alpha, PPR gamma coactivator 1-alpha, which also causes mitochondrial biogenesis and also improves autophagy. You can intermittently fast because that will also promote autophagy. So, are there things that you can do from a lifestyle standpoint that can mimic the effects of drugs on health and on longevity? And the answer is absolutely yes. Despite the fact that so much always goes back to genetics, I always remind myself, not a great proportion, but a big piece of the, just uh, to drop a big name, James Watson comes to mind in an interview I did years <laughs> ago when he was talking about longevity and mitochondria. And he said, you know, I'm a Norwegian stock. I have better longevity simply because my, my mitochondria is longer. Or something well, longer. indeed, indeed. You know, so people talk about genetics all the time. And it is true that genetics load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And when environment pulls the trigger, the trigger is aimed at your mitochondria. Yeah, it's lethal often. <laughs> Let me to take your yeah. metaphor. I want to go to Stefan in Germany, though, who wants to know about, he says, some types of sugar are considered to be worse for the body than others. Is maple syrup better than to sweeten than honey or raw sugar? What to take if you no. can't leave the sweet thing out? Understood. But there are five caloric sweeteners. Okay, they are sucrose, table sugar, cane sugar, beet sugar, the stuff you put in your coffee. High fructose corn syrup, you know, the stuff they put in sodas here in the United States, at least. <clears throat> Maple syrup, honey, agave, they're all the same. 
They're all the same. There's no benefit. There's no value to switching from one to the other. People always talk about honey having beneficial effects. Garbage. The data do not show this. Okay. Uh, I wish it showed that, but it doesn't show that. Um, you know, the only way to reduce the metabolic detriment of sugar currently is to cut consumption. The good news is you can cut consumption significantly. So as an example, I always tell people, you know, what my story, my wife is Norwegian. She bakes for therapy. I can't stop her. Okay. <laughs> I come home and the mixing uh, bowl is out and she's making cookies or whatever. She has learned though, that she can take any recipe and cut the sugar in the recipe by one third, not one half, but one third. And the uh, cookies or the cakes or whatever it will be, will actually come out better. They will, you'll be able to taste the oatmeal. You'll be able to taste the chocolate. You'll be able to taste the nuts and it will hold together equally, you know, because obviously sugar has other effects on uh, baking other than just sweetness. It had, you know, it's a, it's a water activity. It holds on to water. It's hygroscopic. It, it, uh, you know, it, it, it's a hardening agent. It's a, a browning agent, et cetera, et cetera. Point is, we don't need all the sugar that we're being fed in ultra-processed foods. They're being added by the food industry because they've already done their research that shows them that when they add it, you buy more. We need and to that distinguish has to do with though between elasticity. I'm just wondering if we need to distinguish it between fructose and glucose because some are saying, I think, sure. validly now, and there's data to support this. Fructose is more deleterious than glucose. Absolutely. So people need to understand that sugar, dietary sugar, you know the sweet stuff is two molecules. One's called glucose, one's called fructose. Now, glucose is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet burns glucose for energy. Glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. The Inuit, okay, have no place to grow a carbohydrate. They got ice, they got whale blubber, okay? But they still have a serum glucose level. And the reason is because their liver will take the whale blubber, the fat, or the protein, and we'll turn it into glucose in order to maintain a serum glucose level because glucose is that important. So glucose is essential for life, but glu consuming glucose is not essential for life because you can make it. Now, fructose, this other molecule, the sweet molecule, the molecule that goes to the reward center of the brain, that is completely vestigial to all vertebrate life. There's no animal cell on the planet that requires fructose for any biochemical reaction. The only thing it does is activate your reward system. Now, can you think of another compound that we are exposed to pretty routinely that has a, an energy uh, 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 equivalence that you can use it for energy, but also only goes to the reward center of the brain and causes you to want to consume more? Answer, alcohol. Now, there's nobody on the planet who would call alcohol a food, but it's seven calories per gram. It's energy, but it's not a food, and it's addictive. Well, fructose is the same thing. And this the reason is, is because alcohol and fructose are metabolized the same way in the cell exactly the same. This is where neuromarketing comes to my mind and all of what you write about in the hacking of the American mind. I mean, they know what to sell us because they know what 
feeds to our pleasure systems or our dopamine, mm -hmm. and the result is we have this imbalance between dopamine and serotonin that you've written mm -hmm. a great deal about and made us highly acutely aware of in ways that we need to be right. aware of. And right. there's a constant sort of invidiousness, pernicious quality behind this in the way that we're being manipulated through essentially, we're, we're being turned into hedonists without even knowing it, you know, in terms of pleasure, what's feeding our dopamine. Exactly have some more questions right. for you. I want to get to this in more detail with you, obviously, but I want to go first to um, a question from Jeff in, in Summit, Illinois. He says, when looking to lose weight while staying away from sugar, how important is it to fast as well? And what is your recommendation as far as fasting uh, hours per day? Or do you even sure. recommend fasting? Yeah. Sure. So there's this new, you know, fad, and it's not a fad because it works. Fads, you know, tend to, you know, you know, go by the wayside eventually. It does work. Um, it's called intermittent fasting or IF or time restricted eating. And the question is, does it work? And if it does work, why does it work? And we now have the data for that. It does work. It helps induce this thing called autophagy. So autophagy is the recycling of you know, dysfunctional proteins, protein aggregates, lipid peroxidation products, protein denaturation products, all the mitochondria that, have, you know, that have been and gone, all the junk that is made by living, okay, has to get recycled, has to basically be, you know, turned into mulch, and then you have to make new stuff, all right? There's a constant turnover in your cells. And as that turnover gets slower and slower, you get older and older and eventually die because of it. So this process of recycling, which we call autophagy, is absolutely essential to longevity. Autophagy and longevity are virtually you know, tied at the hip. You want to live long, you got to induce autophagy. Well, it turns out intermittent fasting helps induce autophagy. So that's a pretty good thing. And so I'm for it. The question is, Am I for it for everybody? And the answer is the data now show that the people who benefit from intermittent fasting the most are the people who have fatty liver. And the reason, and, and that's 40% of the adult population, actually closer to 45 now, it, it, whether you're obese or not. And there are plenty of thin people with fatty liver too. And the reason it works is because it gives the liver a chance to burn off the fat that's accumulated. So if you don't have fatty liver and you do intermittent fasting, and this was work done by my colleague here at UCSF, Ethan Weiss, and his uh, grad student, Dylan Lowe, and I was on his uh, thesis committee, uh, turns out that only the patients with fatty liver actually benefited from intermittent fasting. So it's not for everybody and not everybody needs it. So you sort of have to know who you are which means you kind of need to, you know, look at your at your data a little bit to figure out whether intermittent fasting is the right thing for you to do or whether it ultimately is just gratuitous. And we thank the, uh, for the question and another question. Thanks to Gerald for this question. Thanks to all of you for your questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Gerald is up in Richmond, British Columbia, and he wants to know, can you comment on plant-based sweeteners as opposed to artificial ones? Well, so plant-based sweeteners, we're talking like stevia. Um, he he now, mentioned stevia, alle yeah. Allulose, right. et cetera. So the artificial ones we now know are highly problematic because they do several things that are not good. Uh, one thing they do is they cause changes in the intestinal microbiome that lead to glucose intolerance and what we call leaky gut. 
Now, the question is, do the um, natural plant-based artificial sweeteners, they're not artificial, but they're um, non-nutritive sweeteners, like for instance, stevia or allulose or um, tagatose. We don't have the data yet to be sure, but we do know that they still cause an insulin response. Whenever you put something sweet on the tongue, it's going to cause an insulin response because message goes tongue to brain, sugar's coming, message goes brain to pancreas via the vagus nerve, sugar's coming, release the insulin. And so you end up with an insulin response, even though it didn't have any calories, even though it didn't have any sugar, even though it didn't raise your serum glucose level, you still got an insulin response. And that insulin response is still going to drive weight gain, and it's still going to drive chronic metabolic disease. The goal is keep the insulin down. Well, if you put stuff that's sweet on your tongue, you're going to keep the insulin up. So the new sweeteners that are coming out may be a little better than the old artificial ones, the saccharin, the neotame, the azosulfame K, uh, uh, you know, the, the sucralose. But it's not like they're a walk in the park either. You're getting a lot of questions asking you to distinguish between different kinds of things. This one comes from Tokyo, from Jeffrey, mm -hmm. who says, what's the difference between processed and ultra-processed food? So... Uh, my colleague, Dr. Carlos Montero at the University of Sao Paulo, has developed a classification system for food processing. It is called the NOVA system, N-O-V-A. And I can basically explain it by giving ex an example. Let's start with an apple. So class one would be an apple, you know, unadulterated. Class two would be, say, apple slices, decored, destemmed, possibly even, uh, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, skin removed. Class three would be applesauce, possibly sweetened applesauce. And class four would be a McDonald's apple pie. All right. Those four classes are based on different levels of processing of those of the apple into different forms and ultimately different ingredients and different nutrients. Turns out when you actually look at the data, it's that class four group that is associated with all of the different chronic metabolic diseases we started the um, uh, show out with. So type two diabetes, hypertension, cancer, uh, all-cause mortality, and now most recently, uh, dementia has been shown to be related to the class four ultra-processing. So ultra-processed food, that class four group, that's the bad guy in the story. And the reason is because of the high sugar, the high uh, refined carbohydrate, the high omega-6s from seed oils, and the lack of fiber. Those are the four uh, criteria that distinguish the worst food. And of course, that's the food the food industry is selling. And we can break down sugar related somehow to susceptibility to cancer? Because you've said that before. Absolutely. Uh, sugar drives cancer uh, 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 formation and growth, mostly growth. So um, an example of this is pancreatic cancer. So pancreatic cancer is the worst cancer. I mean, you get pancreatic cancer, you're going to die. Unless you had uh, Steve Jobs' version, which he could have well, probably yeah, saved he himself died too. from. He and, yeah, but he died too. <laughs> he, I mean, 
he didn't take he, he did things his own way let me put it that way and he, didn't necessarily did. follow traditional allopathic medicine so right well he got a liver transplant as you know yes um and actually he got it in memphis tennessee and i actually am good friends with the guy who actually brought him dinner every night in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, my good friend, Buddy Simmons, who um, I'm going to call him up and tell him that he's got to listen to this. Um, uh, he lived across the street from Steve Jobs when he lived in Memphis. Um, bottom line, uh, uh, if you get a liver transplant, you might be able to prolong your life a little bit more. But most people with pancreatic cancer are dead with, within six months. It turns out the pancreatic cancer makes an enzyme called transketolase. Now, this enzyme can turn fructose into glucose inside the cancer cell so that the cancer cell can preferentially use fructose for its growth, even when the rest of the body can't. And so this is a particularly egregious problem. And it has now been shown that virtually every en endodermal cancer, so ovarian cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, multiple myeloma, leukemia, um, uh, pancreatic cancer, every organ that comes from endoderm. So there are three layers in the, in the embryo. There's ectoderm, which is the central nervous system and skin. There's mesoderm, which is muscle, uh, bone, and fat. And then there's uh, endoderm, which is basically all of the uh, organs in your, in your belly. Turns out that virtually every endodermal cancer is uh, made worse by sugar consumption. Uh, growth is increased by sugar consumption. Now, why that? Why endodermal? I don't know, but that's the way it is. And um, we have the data to demonstrate, both from a mechanistic and also from an epidemiologic standpoint, sugar is a driver of cancer. Question from down under, David in Sydney, Australia, wants to know, did Michael Pollan get it right when he said eat real food, not too much, mostly plants? And full disclosure here, I've actually had dinner at Bob Lustig's home with Michael Pollan, but the question is very direct to you. That, that was the best dinner ever, I got to tell you. I mean, it is right up there. We had such a good time. Uh, yeah, full disclosure to the audience. <laughs> we, um, but Michael Pollan did not say eat real food. He said eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Seven words. Well, let's take that apart. Three clauses. Eat food. Well, what constitutes as food? I've just told you sugar is not food. Okay. So if you believe that and if you agree with that, then much better. But, you know, not everybody does. You know, there are a lot of people who think that sugar is a food, in which case then you got a problem. Not too much. Well, that's a problem when you have addiction, isn't it? You know, how do you stop overconsumption? How do you quantify it, really? And also, the fact is, not too much. When you take the fiber out of food, you don't get the satiety signal because the food doesn't move through the intestine fast enough. Fiber greases the skids to move the food through the intestine faster so you can get the satiety signal called peptide YY up to the brain so that you would actually stop. So the not too much will take care of itself if you ate food with fiber, which is real food, because ultra-processed food is fiberless food. And then finally, mostly plants. Well. Hate to tell you, but Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are all vegan. So what do you mean by eat food, not too much, mostly plants? I have six words, two clauses that actually make more sense. 
protect the liver, feed the gut. And that's what my book, Metabolical, discusses. We've now since added three more words, support the brain. And I will offer to your uh, audience that the World Economic Forum in Davos just completed today. This is it's the last day. It's been this whole week. And they have now uh, outlined a new uh, uh, North Star, a new roadmap for the future of nutrition. And it is based on protect the liver, feed the gut, support the brain. And, um, you know, I had something to do with that. <laughs> Let me go to some more of our listeners. Juan in Mexico City. These days, what includes a balanced diet? What includes a balanced diet? So what does balanced mean? You know, that's a, that's a loaded word to say the least. What I would say is if you ate food that came out of the ground or animals that ate food that came out of the ground, you have a balanced diet. So you don't have to eat the animals. You just have to eat the food that came out of the ground. So if you want to be vegan and you want to stay away from animals, that's fine. You can still have a balanced diet if you eat unprocessed food. If you eat processed food, you can easily make your diet unbalanced. The goal is keep your insulin down. If you keep your insulin down, you will have a balanced diet because that means your mitochondria will work properly. Okay. Low insulin means mitochondrial efficiency. High insulin means mitochondrial dysfunction. It's that simple. You've also so, said, excuse me, Bob, you need a healthy balance between, I alluded to this a little bit before, dopamine and serotonin. Oh, absolutely. Well, the question is, where do you get the serotonin from? And the answer is you get it from a, an amino acid called tryptophan. So tryptophan is the rarest amino acid. It is the precursor to serotonin, and, but it is in extremely low supply. Where's the best place to get tryptophan? The answer is eggs. Next best, poultry, chicken, uh, uh, chicken, fish, okay, and and red meat. Well, those are animal things. Eggs, you know, poultry, chicken, fish. Can you get tryptophan from plants? And the answer is yes, you can, but there's less. So you have to make sure you absorb it well, which means you can't have inflammation in your intestine. And also, if you have inflammation in your intestine, that sends messages to your liver. And the liver will instead take that tryptophan and turn it into a waste product called chiuronine. And you'll never get it up to the brain to turn into serotonin. In addition, 90% of the serotonin in your body is produced in the gut and goes via the vagus nerve up to the brain. So you have to feed your bacteria in order to for them to be able to make the serotonin to get up to the brain. Well, those bacteria, they want to eat their food. Their food is fiber. You have to feed your gut. And the thing they want to eat is fiber. So when you uh, 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 de deprive them of the food they want, which is the fiber, they're going to basically eat the mucin layer right off the surface of your epithelial cells in your intestine. You're, they're going to actually create that leaky gut. They're going to create in uh, irritable bowel syndrome. They're going to create inflammatory bowel disease. They're going to change the immune status of your intestine, which is going to then lead to insulin resistance and chronic metabolic disease. 
So you got to feed your gut. And what your gut is calling for is fiber. So if you eat, you know, fiber, you're good. So can you be a vegan and be healthy? Absolutely. But you can also be a vegan and be deathly ill if you ate cooked Doritos and Oreos, you know, as your, um, as your diet staple. That's pretty unbalanced. I want to thank uh, all these good questions. Thank those of you sending them in. I'm going to get to some more here. Uh, I just wanted to ask, I said to uh, Dr. Lustig before we went live here that I was going to ask him about villains um, because <laughs> I always, it always comes to mind when I read him uh, or when I am exposed to him in any way. And I was thinking to myself, who's the bigger villain here? I mean, you've compared, for example, uh, people who make processed foods to with their lies to the tobacco industry and the kind of lies they told us and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, big food, big pharma, big media. Yeah. Where's a greater culpability for our health and what's being done to undermine our health as you see it? Um, you it's a big question, one. I know, but I've always wanted to ask you along those lines. That's just a really good question, but you forgot one, Michael. Big government. The the, okay, the fourth member of the apocalypse here, <laughs> the fourth horseman, whatever. That's right. All right. It, and it's true. I mean, you know, the fact is that the government set us up for this. And, you know, I think they could unset us up. They could actually do the right thing. Uh, I, I think, you know, people always ask me, you know, like, if you had a magic wand and you could do like one thing and have it stick, what would the one thing be to try to fix this problem? And my answer to that is always the same. Get rid of the food subsidies. I think the food subsidies got us into this mess. Before we had food subsidies, we didn't have this problem. Now, having said that, we've had a food subsidy since 1790. It is the second oldest piece of legislation in the history of the United States from 1790. And it was a sugar tariff. That is a food subsidy, all right? We've had that, and it's still in place, by the way. It's changed a few times, but it's still in place. I think that food subsidies distort the market. And what they've done is they've given impetus and they've given cause to all of these ultra-processed food companies to basically get this corporate handout, you know, this government handout, and produce the worst food possible and sell it at the highest price while they're at it. So. So you're yes, talking about big make, ag, basically, aren't you, for the most part? Um, uh, absolutely. So I think big ag is, you know, uniquely responsible for this. But the reason is because of the per perverse incentives that the government laid out for them. So, you know, where does it start? The fact is big ag is not going to change. They are not going to change unless you make them change. And the only way to make them change is to change the money because that's all they're interested in. That's their job. Make money. They happen to make it selling food, but it's not like the food's the primary issue. The money's the primary issue. And all you have to do is look at their stock price to know it. So how do you fix the food subsidy issue? And if you fix the food subsidy issue, would the price of food go up? That's what people think. The price of food would go up and that would be a bad thing. That would be wrong. You would be wrong. The Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley did this exercise. They did this modeling experiment years ago where they said, what would happen if we got rid of all food subsidies? Now, that would mean all food subsidies everywhere, not just in America, but you know, around the world. Would the price of food change? And it turns out 
the price of food would not change. There are only two items, two items, where the price where those the price of those two items would go up: corn and sugar. How were they able exact- to? prognosticate or predict that on what basis well that uh, uh <laughs> some fancy uh modeling uh you know i, I mean computer I can point modeling you to, for to the, the paper yeah. the 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 first author author of that paper was alston j.a alston uh and 2007 um um i'm forgetting the uh, journal right now but um it's you know if somebody wants to email me i'll, I'll send it to it was them. mainly computer modeling though it's a computer model yeah. of course yeah absolutely so you know, the question is, if we got rid of food subsidies, would that make a difference? And I think it would actually make a huge difference. And the reason is because you wouldn't be rewarding the food industry for doing the wrong thing. You know, I'm not against the food industry making money. I am against the food industry making money by poisoning people. That I'm against. Right? So how can you fix that? And how can you help the food industry start doing the right thing, not just by our health, but also by our environment. Well, it turns out real food, as opposed to processed food, is unbelievably good for the environment. If we did regenerative agriculture, we would not we'd actually not only just not make the environment worse, we'd actually make it better because we'd be fixing carbon into the ground. We'd actually be re, you know, re um, uh, uh, generating our, our world as we know it. So there are a whole bunches of reasons to do this aside from individual health. I mean, it's planetary health. I mean, it's the, uh, and economics too, because they're not going to lose money. They're going to still make money. In fact, they might even make more money, but they're afraid. And unfortunately, until the subsidies change, until we stop giving them the, the, the government handout, why would they change? Question for you from Menlo Park. Colin wants to know how you figure out if you have or don't have fatty liver. Ah, very good question, Colin. So you need your doctor to tell you, unfortunately. So there are three levels of information that you can know. The first is cheap and free, but it's not specific. It's your waist circumference. So if you're a male and your waist circumference is over 40 inches, or if you're a female and your waist circumference is over 35 inches, you have visceral fat. And if you have visceral fat, there's a good chance you have liver fat too. Now that's free, but it's not specific. If you want specific, then you have to go to lab tests. So the lab test that is the closest to fatty liver is the ALT, alanine aminotransferase. The good news is it's on virtually every yearly chem panel. So you can get the answer from your doctor or from your you know, medical record that you should have access to you know, based on uh, HIPAA. And you look at your ALT and the question is, how do you interpret it is the question. The upper limit for ALT is 25. But when you look at the lab slip, it says that the upper limit for ALT is 40. Now, why do I say it's 25 when the lab slip says 40? When I entered medical school in 1976, the upper limit of ALT was 25, and it said so on the lab slip. Today on that lab slip, it says 40. So what happened in those 45 years? Answer, everyone got fatty liver. 
45% of the entire population has fatty liver. The entire curve shifted to the right. And the way you figure out that normal range is you take the mean, you take two standard deviations and you draw a line. You say, okay, that's the upper limit. Well, if the curve shifted to the right, guess what? The upper limit shifted to the right too. And so the doctor will tell you, oh, your ALT is 35. It's normal because it's less than 40. Garbage. 25 is the upper limit of normal. And for African-Americans, it's 20. Don't ask me why. It just is. It's a long, complicated story. It's a, but, something we don't have the answer to, I know, because I've read yeah. about it. Uh, I've also read, as probably a lot of people who are listening to you talk now, have read The Hacking of the American Mind. And I just wanted to give people, especially since a lot of the office hours people who are with us are tech people and are interested in how you turn that metaphor yeah. and how you yeah. essentially gild it. Hacking of the American Mind? Why is the yeah. American Mind hacked? How is it being hacked? <laughs> so all those tech bros in uh, Silicon Valley, you know what? They're they're now doing something called dopamine fasts. So dopamine is the pleasure neurotransmitter. Dopamine says to your brain, this feels good. I want more. And so you consume more. Dopamine is the um consumption neurotransmitter whatever it was that raised your dopamine you want more of it and there are many things that can raise your dopamine there are chemicals that can raise your dopamine and i'll give you a list of five cocaine heroin nicotine alcohol sugar and there are behaviors that can raise your dopamine shopping gambling internet gaming social media pornography they all raise dopamine and in the extreme, every single one of those leads to addiction. There's an aholic after each of those. Chocoholic, sexaholic, alcoholic, you know, um, um, shopaholic, et cetera. Okay. There is a point at which you actually have pathology because of the excess and chronicity of dopamine release. And it turns out dopamine causes cell death chronic overstimulation of any dopamine neuron will lead to neuronal cell death and that's what happens in addiction is those neurons fire so often that they actually burn out and die and when they die they don't get replaced and this is why former addicts will tell you that they never feel the level of pleasure that they had when they were um, using. And so why so many of them go back to recidivism and try again, and why so many of them overdose and end up dying, like, you know, John Belushi, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Winehouse, wow. et cetera. Well, now it's because, fentanyl on killing so many of them. And now it's fentanyl, yeah. right. And now it's fentanyl. So whether it was cocaine before, and now it's fentanyl, or the bottom line is um, those dopamine neurons are fragile. And when you chronically overstimulate them, they're going to die. So people in Silicon Valley and, you know, on Wall Street and whatever else, you know, they basically, you know, from either the cocaine or from the just the rush of, of their jobs are actually now doing this thing called dopamine fasting, 
look it up. Um, there was an article in the New Yorker about it. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about it. Um, and the goal is to basically stop whatever the um, uh, substrate for pleasure was for a period of time, which usually borders on the two-week to three-week range. And what they do is they basically allow the receptors, the dopamine receptors, to repopulate so that they can actually feel something. So this notion that dopamine is benign and that the things that cause dopamine release are all good really has to be rethought. Now, there is this other neurotransmitter, serotonin. We mentioned it before. Serotonin is the happiness neurotransmitter, the contentment neurotransmitter, the neurotransmitter that tells your brain, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. So dopamine and serotonin are not the same. I want more, I don't need anymore. Those are not the same. Turns out serotonin is not an excitatory neurotransmitter, it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So if you're inhibiting neuronal firing, can you cause neuronal cell death? No, if anything, it's protective. So there's no such thing as overdosing on too much happiness. Yeah, I was thinking about don't worry, be happy. I mean, happiness, I've always thought, uh, just a philosophical turn here for a moment, is something that's ephemeral, it's evanescent, it's transitory, it's not, Absolutely. it's mutable. And yet somehow there's this notion that we can continue to make it perpetual. Or maybe it's in, right. you know, America is one of the, I'm talking about America now, even though we're global in terms of listeners, but right, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they take that very seriously. Uh, right. There aren't many other cultures that believe that you have the right to pursue happiness and happiness gets too, as you've pointed out, confused with pleasure and pleasure with happiness. And that's a Indeed. big problem. But we've got some more questions and I want to, got a little bit of time left. Let me, uh, let me try so to get a few more. Just, just a quick aside. Um, it is true that Thomas Jefferson did say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is true. He said it in the Declaration of Independence. It's never been said again. It's never been said again, not in any state constitution or any other document coming out of anywhere. What it says instead is life, liberty, and property. Well, Jefferson would like to be dispensed with by some anyway, because he was a slave owner, you know, so we should maybe do yeah. away with anything that he's written, cancel him. And well, I don't I'm know being that. a little bit ironic, obviously. <laughs> I'm trying to be. I understand. <laughs> um, like you with the Silicon Valley laying. Uh, let's uh, let's go to some more questions. <laughs> well, we got a few more minutes with us, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with right. you until you say yeah. stop. All right. Um, it's too much pleasure. It'd be hard for me to say stop. If you... Oh, Michael, you know, we, we, we just have to have you to dinner again. <laughs> Let me go to San Diego with James, who says, what steps need to be taken to address the metabolic disease epidemic on a societal level? Oh, boy. Big yeah, question that's the again. Big question. Yeah. yeah, that's the big question, James. What do we need to do? You know, education is what everybody wants to be the answer. Everybody wants education. I educate the public, you know, let them make their own choices for themselves. That's what everyone says. Well, unfortunately, education has never solved any substance of abuse. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? We got an opioid crisis. And that's actually the definition of addiction. You can know that whatever it is that you're addicted to is ruining your life, your health, your economy, your community, your family, and you're powerless to do anything about it because the drive to use is so great. There's no amount of cognitive inhibition 
that can overcome that biochemical drive. Well, guess what? There's no level of cognitive inhibition that can overcome that level of food consumption because sugar is addictive. Now, how do we make sugar unaddictive? The answer is no, we can't. Okay, we can't. What we can do is the iron law of public health. The iron law of public health says reducing availability of a substance will reduce consumption, which will reduce health harms. And it's the iron law. There are no exceptions. And it's been true throughout history. So you have to reduce availability. Now, how do you reduce availability of sugar? And the answer is you reduce not availability, you reduce effective availability. You do that by taking away the subsidies. You do that by putting limits on how much sugar can be added to any individual food. You put limits on how much added sugar can be in a school meal. By the way, here in California, we're about to see some legislation on that uh, very topic um, very soon. Uh, The point is, uh, there are ways to limit people's exposure that have nothing to do with their own personal preferences or their behavior. And ultimately, that's what we're going to have to do. Now, people don't like regulation. I understand, okay? You know, I understand the libertarian, you know, uh, uh, dynamic. Well, you know what? What are subsidies? Are subsidies, you know, God-given? No, all right? Subsidies distort the market. Let the market work. That's very libertarian. Let the market do its job. Well, if you have subsidies, what you're doing is you're basically giving a handout to the thing you're subsidizing and you're taxing everything else. You okay paying a tax on everything else? And you're not just paying one tax, you're paying three, all right? Here are your three taxes. The first tax is the subsidy itself because you're being taxed on everything else to make book because it doesn't come free, you know. Number two, you're paying a second tax. We just don't call it a tax. We call it an insurance premium because you are paying $2,750 per year for obesity-related health care, even though you're not obese, because your employer has to pay that in order to be able to basically have a health care plan. That's coming out of your pocket, whether you like it or not, you're paying that tax. And number three, finally, then there's the soda tax, you know, to basically try to raise the price of soda so that people will consume less of it. What if we just got rid of the subsidies you wouldn't then have the insurance premium and you wouldn't then have to worry about the soda tax. So to me, it always comes back to the fact that the market is distorted. And who distorted it? The government. But why did the government distort it? Because the food industry made them do it. And that goes back to the original Farm Bill of 1933. Did the food industry make them do it or did they just lobby enough and have enough political pressure to make it happen and bring it to what, fruition. I mean, it's within the, the system. Well, I, you know, the system has to be changed if you're going to do away with subsidies. Exactly. You. And that's and that's where we have to focus our attention. I will tell you, you know, this, this is, you know, off record, <laughs> some off record when it's going out on the internet. Um, I am working with several former members of Congress who understand this problem and are working behind the scenes to try to do something about it. Bipartisan members? 
bipartisan. Well, good for you. Let me go to one final question for you. It's from Washington, D.C., from Eric, who says, could you comment on semaglutide? Since the stated goal is to keep insulin yep. down, it seems right. like semaglutide use will cause a feedback loop where people will lose weight, boost insulin production, and eat anything until something breaks. <laughs> it's a very good question, and we don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, I'm on record as saying this semaglutide, which is also called Wagovi, that's the trade name, uh, is probably not the best answer to this problem. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics just two weeks ago announced that they've changed their obesity guidelines for children, and they now agree with intensive therapy, which I agree with. I'm having run the UCSF pediatric obesity program for 17 years. I agree because all the pediatricians are telling the parents, oh, don't worry, it's baby fat, it'll go away. No, it won't. No, it will not go away. And it's only going to get worse. And yes, yeah, excuse me, but what about, what about it, fat cells? People keep bringing up fat cells when they talk yeah, about it. Yeah, absolutely. And fat cells want to maintain their fat. Okay. Once they're made, they don't like to give it up. All right. So, so don't feed the fat cells, basically, is what you're Don't saying. feed the fat cells. Yeah. That's exactly right. Do not feed the fat cells. Don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the fat cells. Bottom line, um, Wigovi or um, semaglutide will help promote weight loss. And I don't argue that. And as soon as you stop it, all the weight comes back. It is a bypass to the problem. It is not solving the problem. It is a Band-Aid for the problem. It is not a treatment for the true problem. The true problem is the metabolic dysfunction. Wagovi does not fix that. So, doesn't it make more sense to actually deal with the problem head on? And the problem is the food. Wagovi is not fixing that. It's also the shiny object that's basically taking our eye off the ball. Now, do I believe in treatment? Sure, of course I do. I was the head of the obesity program at UCSF, but I believe even more in prevention. And you have to do both. And I'm worried that by basically, you know, getting on the Wagovi bandwagon, we're going to basically miss the point of what we have to do in order to fix the metabolic health crisis that we have in this country. 93% of all adults are metabolically dysfunctional today, 93%. And they're going to die early and cost the system more and more money. Can I ask you where that number Lifespan comes from? Lifespan and health span the, the, are down 17 years across the board. I just want That's, to ask you where the 93% figure comes from. A paper from the from Tufts that came out a couple Tufts of Medical uh, School. months ago. Yeah. Tufts Medical School. Yeah. And before that, it was uh, we, we had a paper from Araho et al. In, uh, from 2019 that said it was 88%. So it's going up, yeah. 88 to 93. Bottom line, we got to fix that. Now, do you think Wagovi is going to fix that? That ain't going to get fixed by Wagovi. So we have to work where the problem is. You cannot bypass the problem. You cannot treat the symptom of the problem. Obesity is a symptom of the problem. It is not the problem itself. It is a manifestation of the problem. Let's fix the problem where it exists. What a note to end on. Let's fix the problem indeed and always admire your passion and uh, the Illumination that you bring to us in so many areas. Oh, Let me just, pleasure. first of all, thanks 
to all of you who are with us today and all who will be with us in this podcast as it goes into eternity. And uh, find out more about us, simply go to graymatter.show and join our growing membership community. Thanks, too, to our outstanding Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team. That's Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And special thanks to this episode's guest, Dr. Robert Lustig. Thank you, Bob. Oh, thank you for having me, Michael. It's always my pleasure. Likewise. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.